If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to New Books in Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm a host on the show. And today, I'm thrilled to welcome Sashka Wieringa back to the show. Several months ago, Sashka, along with her co-editors Annie Pullman and Jess Melvin, were on the pod to talk about their collection of essays titled The International People's Tribunal for 1965 and the Indonesian Genocide. You can find that podcast on the website if you haven't uh, listened to it yet. But today, Sashka is back to talk about a a co-authored book called Propaganda and the Genocide in Indonesia, Imagined Evil. It's an excellent book, and it supplements many of the uh, insights that were in the the International People's Tribunal book. I'm thrilled to get a chance to talk with her about it today. So welcome back, Sashka, and thanks for joining us. Thank you, Kelly, for the introduction. So uh, I know you've been on the show before, but that was a while. Maybe you can start just by saying a little bit about who you are uh, and how you got to be interested in the history of um, propaganda and the Indonesian genocide. Yes, I'm an anthropologist and I've always been working on women's and gender studies. And when I was doing my PhD um, in the early 80s on the women's movement in Indonesia, I came across, uh, or at least uh, I was met by uh, some survivors of the uh, of the massacres of Suharto in 65. They were members of Gurwani, Gerakan Wanita Indonesia, Indonesian women's movement, the largest women's organization uh, in Indonesia at the time, one of the three largest women's movements ever in the history with one and a half million members. And they had been imprisoned uh, because they had been uh, accused of being involved in the murders of six generals uh, on the night of 1st of October, 1965. Um, And their involvement allegedly consisted of, well, actually of being a member of Gurwani, and Gurwani members were accused of being present, not only at the murders, at the murder site, and having uh, seduced generals and castrated them. The members who were present at the site where they were killed actually by, uh, by soldiers uh, were girls of 14, 15 years. So the slander was the young girls, 13, 14, 15 years old, had seduced 60 year old generals uh, and, and then gone on to castrate them. Um, this was one of the most, I think it's one of the most effective um, 
propaganda mechanisms to justify or to try to justify um, a genocide or mass killings or massacres, whatever you call it. We call it genocide and in the, in the International People's Tribunals because about uh, one million people were murdered and uh, a whole stream, a social stream, a progressive leftist socialist stream in society was totally uh, annihilated um, in, in human history. Um, um, and since then, I've been following this. I wrote a book about this, um, and Sexual Politics in Indonesia, which was translated into Indonesian. And, but it never ended. My involvement with this genocide never ended. That, so that's why uh, we, had, uh, we had the tribunal in, in 2015 in order to at least get attention again to, the, to, the, to this propaganda mechanism. And then in, <clears throat> because I was preparing for this tribunal, um, and one of the major gaps was how the propaganda machinery actually worked uh, and I had to collect so much information myself on that in order to provide that to the judges of our tribunal. Uh, I thought I should write a book about the topic. And in writing and in that book and in collecting the information, I was uh, assisted and stimulated and prodded on uh, by my uh, co-author, uh, Nur Shahbani Katya Sunkana. She's a prominent human rights activist. Uh, uh, involved with the human rights movement since the early days of the Suharto government, herself uh, um, a victim, well, at least uh, the daughter of a victim of the uh, of the genocide uh, in '65. Uh, her uncle and her aunt were murdered. At least they were they were disappeared, as one say, and never found back. Her father was uh, all of a sudden. Uh, 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 fired from his job, he had an important job, and was was a very ardent supporter of uh, Sukarno, the first president. And, and so the family was plunged into great poverty. Um, friends of hers were murdered. Uh, and uh, she, she lived at the time um, very close to the Kabun Raya, that is the botanical garden in which one of the largest massacres of the genocide is contained, more than 800 people probably. And so she was surrounded by that genocide and she assisted greatly uh, with writing uh, this book. Therefore, she is the co-author. Um, at least we shared a political authorship, although I did most of the writing of the book. But of course, I think writing is only the last stage of preparing uh, a book. And so this is the, gen the, the genesis <laughs> of the book on the genocide of uh, Indonesia. As I said, about a million people were murdered. Hundreds of thousands were uh, uh, detained at some stage, of which many disappeared and never came back. Um, and um, to sustain this, uh, this campaign, um, well, the, the propaganda was an important element. So that's why we wrote this book. And, uh, and we talked at length about the IPT earlier in the previous interview. Um, can you say, but, but, but you've got a great chapter on it here. Can, for, for those of our listeners who didn't hear that interview, can you just say a little bit more about the IPT and, and, and what it was and how it worked? 
Yeah, um, the IPT, of course, came from various sides. We were all frustrated that uh, even after 1998, when the when the the, the dictator General Suharto had, was forced to step down, in which Nusya Bani Katyasunkana had an important role in this movement, by the way. Uh, and again, nothing happened. The propaganda still remained. People still believed that Gurwani members uh, were murderers and castrators and things and so on. People still believed that the PKI, the Communist Party, uh, and all the socialist people who supported Sukarno had been, as they call it, salah, wrong. And, and of what consisted their mistake, their kesalahan, their mistake? It was only that they were members of a party that was completely legal at the time. Um, so the propaganda was still going on. Uh, the stigmatization of the victims was still going on. The stigmatization of the families of the victims was still going on. If you, your father or your mother had been involved or killed or imprisoned or whatever, you still could not go to university and all that. The truth was still not known. It was still not accepted. Uh, and so we nobody had ever was ever tried for any of the murders or tortures that they had uh, committed. So nothing ever happened. And then two films were made by uh, Joshua Oppenheimer, and they were very important: um, the act of killing and the look of silence. And they sparked a lot of interest. And after the act of killing had gone into, uh, was launched here in, in, in Holland, I'm in Holland at the moment, um, um, Joshua and lots of friends and exiles, Holland has a lot of exiles of 65, came together in my house and we discussed what to do. What can we do now? I mean, it's all exposed. There are books about it. Everybody should know it, but there's still no attention to it. And then we thought, uh, well, the Indonesian state will at this moment not act. It's not expected to act. We cannot expect that. Um, the ICC, the international mechanisms, don't apply uh, uh, because the uh, the Rome Statute uh, was signed, and at least it's not it's not uh, accepted in Indonesia after the after '65. So after the event. And the agreement was that genocides before that time would not be uh, judged by that. And so we don't have an official mechanism, but it's important that we, with the, if we collect the legal arguments and that, that we put it all together. And so then we thought we should set up uh, a people's tribunal uh, following from the Vietnam tribunal and following from other kinds of people's tribunals, which do not have an official legal status, uh, in which people will not be tried and judged and sent to prison, but in which at least the people have the voice to speak out and in which the voices of the victims can also be heard and all the legal argument, uh, arguments can be heard and, and judged. And so that is what we did. It was an enormous task. Altogether, we worked for almost four years on it, on both the preparations and on the aftermath. But I think it was rather successful. Um, we have a, a sharp report, which is, uh, which is cited by everybody who is now working on the genocide which clearly concludes that, yes, this, is, uh, this, this is, uh, should be considered a genocide, and in which the state of Indonesia 
uh, is uh, fully considered responsible. Uh, and this is important because one of the elements of the propaganda campaign was that this is not a vertical conflict uh, with the state killing people, but a horizontal conflict, uh, namely militias and people killing each other. This is simply not true. The tribunal clearly was able to prove that uh, even if lots of militias were involved, both religious and secular militias, they were all coordinated and trained and steered from above. And, and so this is one of the findings of the tribunal, which is important. And this is also one element uh, that comes up in our book. Uh, in our book, we try to follow um, the whole argumentation of the propaganda. I mean, propaganda never arises in a vacuum. So that's why we went back almost a uh, hundred years, um, because one of the central tensions in Indonesian society is the tensions between um, hardliner Muslim groups and more socialist, secular uh, uh, ideas. Um, and so we followed those ideas uh, from uh, 1926 when the, when, the, when the first uprising against the colonial government at the time, the Dutch, started, in which Muslims and socialists collaborated. This is a thing that is often ignored, um, in which uh, uh, religious leaders at the time said that, uh, uh, well, um, we are the inspiration for social justice, but the communists and the socialists are the ones who are actually practicing social justice. So let us collaborate. Uh, and we wanted to get this very clear, that it is possible for communists and socialists and religious forces to be together on a similar theme of humanity and justice, that it was together, that it was possible in Indonesian history once, even though now at this moment, the tensions between these two groups are so great. And so we followed that. How did they fall apart? How they, did they become enemies? Uh, what, what other uh, kind of uh, social tensions emerged through the, uh, uh, the struggle for independence, through the independence war, through the machinations of the Cold War and the USA getting into the whole fray uh, and supporting, uh, of course, right-wing forces, through all the social tensions uh, of that period, uh, and through eventually, of course, also the 65 uh, uh, events, as they say, uh, in which uh, the tensions that had built up previously came to an enormous outburst. And it follows uh, uh, the propaganda until now, because the stigmatization uh, still, uh, still continues. Uh, still, at this moment, uh, communists are considered uh, uh, immoral, they are stigmatized, and you cannot, and if you are called new Kirwani for the women, so when you are, a, uh, it's a very bad thing to be called that because it means that uh, you're immediately stigmatized and your ideas are not taken seriously. So it is very difficult at this moment in Indonesian history still to come up with socialist ideas because, and, and I mean, the injustice is so, and the inequality is so major in Indonesian society. And it's so difficult to come up and to fight for social justice. And that is what also one of the purposes of the book, to understand that history. How come that even though um, 
the Panchasila. The Panchasila is the state philosophy. It's called, it is enshrined in the preamble of the constitution. And Panchasila means five principles. And the first principle is, um, is a belief in one God. But other principles are social justice, humanity, democracy, and human rights. And these are often ignored. Um, and so how, the, how come that the Panchasila, with its insistence on social justice and democracy and human rights, um, is not seen as sufficient to instill the basic idea that the oligarchy which is now in power, which was put into power by the Suharto regime, and which is now controlling the economy, the military, and the political elite, uh, and which is uh, responsible for the suffering of so many Indonesians, millions and millions of them, for the degradation of society, and for the major forms of inequality, is still in power, and why it is so difficult to build up a movement that consists of human rights and social justice and that fights for equality, gender equality, women's equality, human rights, uh, sexual rights, uh, is stigmatized to such an extent. And that still is, has to be understood from that history. And so in our book, we try to, uh, to make this history um, clear so that people understand where it comes from. And this is actually also what I've always tried to do in, in my life. Um, I mean, when I started my, my research into the women's movement, my question was, how come that the present, well, at that time in 1982, that the women's movement in 1982 is so weak, while Indonesia has this strong history of mobilization of women. Well, in the 50s and 60s, early 60s, Indonesian women were well known in the international uh, big um, um, movements and, and congresses. They were, they were speaking out and they were very uh, well uh, respected. Um, I have got letters in my archive of in Indian women, Sudanese women, asking the Indonesian women, how come you're so successful? How come you're able to, uh, to mobilize so many women to fight uh, against illiteracy was, of course, a very important issue, but also for sexual justice, against prostitution, against rape, against domestic violence. They were very powerful. They were really getting something going in that society at the time. And they were well known internationally for that. And in the 1980s, it was all gone. Uh, the women were tamed. <laughs> they were suppressed, uh, they were no longer respected, uh, they were just voices of a, of a dictatorial murderous regime. And so my question was, how come? How come this change? And this is actually the leading question in my whole career. How come this change? How come that Indonesia, with its proud history, of an independent struggle, of a proud international beginning. Indonesia was one of the motors behind the non-aligned movement, right? Which tried to steer clear from the Cold War, uh, but they were eventually uh, defeated by it. Um, Indonesia was respected for that in the 50s. How come that a country like that is still tainted by such inequality and so many people are suffering? And so this is always the motor of my work. How come? How does this happen? And you've got to go to back to the history to understand the real mechanisms of what is going on. So that is what we are trying to do. So 
so the basic one of the basic claims you make in the book is that there is a pretty consistent narrative about what happened in 1965 and following and why it happened. So can you kind of give us an overview about what that narrative is and who created it? Um, well, the ones who created it is clearly the army. Um, <coughs> they, uh, <coughs> sorry, they, uh, particularly their uh, kind of political department of the group um, of uh, Suharto, I'm not going to the whole arrangement of the army at the time, but they came up with the lie that, first of all, that Karwani girls castrated the generals. This, of course, was infuriating uh, the Muslim population, which is very traditional. How come that, that communism uh, is, ha has led to our women uh, castrating generals, right? Um, but the, the, the basic idea was to, uh, to incriminate the Communist Party. And the Communist Party had to be incriminated because, and this is again a, a consequence of the Cold War, Sukarno had to be removed. And how to remove Sukarno? Sukarno can only be removed when his big pillar in society, um, which consists of both the Communist Party and of his own ardent nationalists, were destroyed. And so it had to be destroyed through military means, of course, but also through propaganda, because people had to understand why it was so important to destroy the Communist Party and why why uh, it was understandable and why it was um, uh, and and why people should um, support the army and the militias that it trained to do that and that is why propaganda comes in so the communist party had to be destroyed in order for sukarno to be replaced by a much more compliant general who would no longer oppose the united states who would no longer oppose uh, capitalism coming into the country with the big firms that, uh, that Sukarno had changed out, coming back into the country, with a trade union movement is totally destroyed, with a progressive uh, cultural and, uh, and women's movement, with a farmer's movement that was totally uh, destroyed, also progressive farmer's movement. So the left had to be destroyed for capitalism to come in, and capitalism could only come in when Sukarno would be removed, and for that, uh, well, the army had to get uh, free reign in organizing that, together with uh, conservative groups in society, uh, consisting of both Catholic, they were very important, and uh, Muslim conservative groups. So, so the army constructs this neighborhood. How how do they? What instruments do they use to, to teach this to the population? And I'm thinking specifically, and I'm sorry, the name of the movie blanks out, but there, there's a movie that is shown to kids. Can, can you talk about those kind of instruments that are used? Yeah. Um, so Suharto and his uh, group of particularly U.S. trained uh, colonels and generals was very clever in, in uh in organizing this whole campaign. The first thing they did was to uh, destroy or prohibit or whatever, any kind of left-leaning media. So the first thing they did was to control the media. Um, and don't forget, at that time that they were doing that, uh, Sukarno was still in power. So the US could not be seen to immediately support Suharto. So what they did was uh, CIA and others 
uh, other forces, the Australian and British forces were uh, complicit as well, is to provide Suharto with the means of communication. I mean, Indonesia is enormously um, uh, extended, right? It's an archipelago of um, probably, <laughs> depending on how you count, 17,000 islands. Mm -hmm. So the means of communication is very important. And that was at that time, particularly radio transmission. Uh, and so the army started propagating their propaganda through uh, the radio, because that was at that moment a major means of propaganda. Well, they also controlled the, uh, the, the, the print media. So only the, uh, the, uh, the army newspapers were still allowed to be published. All the other newspapers uh, were closed down. So that is the first thing, control propaganda. Second thing was control your own army. So there were purges of the army, and later on also, uh, that was uh, Nushabani's father, um, a purges of the administration. So the whole um, apparatus of the government, the army and the administration were purged. People were fired from one day to the next. Some of them were locked up and they never uh, returned. Uh, some of them were just fired without any pension rights. Uh, and others were just killed and disappeared, right? So control, 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 control over the media, control over the army, control over the administration. Um, and fired up student movements helped. Um, and then the whole society was being molded into, uh, into indeed believing that the army narrative, that the Communist Party was behind the murder of the generals and that the uh, Garvani uh, girls had done this kind of thing, um, that that was true, that everybody had to believe that. So then the cultural sector became involved. And the cultural sector was, of course, first of all, they made a movie, uh, as you said, eh? the, the, the betrayal of the Katie Kipula S. That's what they called the 30 September movement. And in the, in and this movie that became compulsory viewing for all school children and all groups actually of compulsory viewing uh, 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 portrayed exactly the narrative of the army and portrayed Suharto as the savior of the nation, the big hero who at the right time acted uh, to save the nation from these murderous uh, communists. Whereas, of course, when you look at what happened, Actually, Suharto, um, well, minimally, he should be tried himself as a category A prisoner because he knew exactly what was going to happen. Um, because the soldiers who kidnapped the generals and later killed them um, were part of the troops, part of them were troops that Suharto commanded. Right, And the leaders of those soldiers were close associates of Suharto, and they went and they visited him and told them that this was going on. So Suharto knew that his senior officers were going to be at least abducted, because the original plan seemed to be to bring those generals to Sukarno uh, in order for Sukarno to deal with them, because the the, the 
the rumor was spread, and who spread them is, of course, still one of the vague things, uh, that these generals were going to commit uh, coup d'etat uh, on uh, Armed Forces Day a few days later in October. Um, and then Sukarno would go to deal with them. And abduction is, um, at that moment in history, was one of the tricks that was used in political uh, struggles. So that was not the strangest thing to do. But that they were killed, of course, that was the major uh, mistake, if you can say, or the major trigger of the murders that followed. Now, why were they killed? This question has never been answered uh, sufficiently. Part of uh, a few were killed, possibly because of stupidity, but the others were clearly killed on orders. Now, who ordered that? And we still don't know that. We still don't know that. In the book, uh, uh, the propaganda book that you're discussing now, I come up with two scenarios. It's an active scenario and a passive scenario in which Suharto is involved. The passive scenario is that Suharto knew that this was going to happen and that he let it continue, which means that he's complicit because he should have warned his superiors. The active scenario is, is that he actually gave secret orders to kill his superior officers because it meant that if all his superior officers were killed, he would be the army leader and he would be the big man to replace Sukarno. Because Suharto was not the most senior officer at the time, right? It was not logical that he would succeed Sukarno. So we don't know. Uh, Sukarno uh, and both Sukarno and Suharto have passed away without uh, us being able to find out exactly what uh, was going on. Um, but most both scenarios are likely to they may have happened. Um, and uh, let's hope that at some stage in history we'll find out what exactly happened at that time. Um, but at any way, to sustain Suharto's rule and to support it and to support the, uh, the workings of the oligarchy that he was building around him, he needed to have the compliance of large uh, groups of the population. And both terror, uh, killing everybody uh, who they didn't like, propaganda, and of course, corruption and nepotism, those were the, the three major tools that Suharto used to forge uh, obedience uh, in, 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 in society. So, so I assume you've seen the movie. What is it like? What kind of images does it show? Is it black and white? Is it color? Is it narrative? Yeah, it is a long film, uh, almost two hours, and it, it it explores in gory details what has been going on. Um, and as I said, it's it is very traumatizing. Everybody who watched this film as a kid talks about that they got a trauma because of that. So it instilled enormous fear and disgust. Uh, among school children, and they had to watch it every year, right? It was not something that they could close their eyes to and then forget. No, every year they were forced to watch this film. So the images are burned on their, on their how you call it, <laughs> in their minds mm -hmm. uh, about uh, the murderers, the screaming, the lecherous uh, Karani girls 
the murderers, uh, uh, PKI leaders, and the hero, uh, Suharto. These images were propagated again and again and again and again, but also in novels, in poetry, and in other forms uh, of, of propaganda. But this film was clearly the most effective one. It's a horrible film. It's a gory film. It's a, it's a dirty film in all its lies and, uh, and, 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 and details. Uh, and and it's, it's still shown, actually. I mean, um, two years ago, uh, Jokowi was happy to watch it together with, uh, uh, at that time, the leader of the army. That, uh, and and that, that's still propagated. So it's not forgotten. It is still an element that is important in society. And at this moment in time, it, uh, between elections, those are always the most uh, quiet times in Indonesian uh, politics. Uh, and also because Jokowi, uh, the present president, has been able to, um, <laughs> to include all his enemies into his, par into, his, uh, into his government at the moment. There is not much propaganda going on uh, at the moment against the Communist Party. Uh, but... Uh, it may uh, erupt again at any moment. And particularly because they've got a second uh, bogeyman now uh, up uh, in order to, uh, to, pay, to attract attention away from what's going on. Uh, and what is going on, for instance, at this moment is the weakening of the Anti-Corruption Committee. This is a major struggle. The Anti-Corruption Committee was one of the major results and achievements of the reform movement after uh, Suharto uh, was uh, uh, put down. Uh, and they're weakening it now because, of course, the anti-corruption committee was very effective. So scores of politicians have ended up in prison. Um, and politicians and, and generals <laughs> and businessmen, of course. So the political elite is annoyed with the successes of the anti-corruption committee. And uh, it's being weakened now very successfully. Um, and to do that, uh, religious hardliners, of course, play a role. And, uh, and the second element in society, I call it the second moral, sexual moral panic. Uh, has appeared in society. The first sexual moral panic was the case of the Gervani girls, right? That you see socialist girls seducing and castrating generals. And the second sexual moral panic actually started around 20, uh, 2016 um, when a political leaders started shouting anti-LGBT slogans and said they had to be wiped off the earth and first of all, wiped uh, out of uh, cam uh, university campuses. Um, and this, of course, is the result of a sustained campaign of hardliner uh, Muslim groups, uh, assisted by the army and by other right-wing groups. And so at this moment, the, those who are carrying the brunt of society's uh, well, abhorrence, uh, is the LGBT community. Um, homosexuality in Indonesia has never been illegal, at least not consensual same-sex acts between adults. Uh, at, at this moment, um, uh, ho discrimination and uh, criminalization of LGBT, uh, as, as they call it in Indonesia, of homosexuality is going on. And an enormous anti 
LGBT campaign is carried out. The activists who were moderately successful uh, after the fall of Suharto, who were trying to build up identity-based movements, who were, um, who were trying to at least be accepted in society, uh, have now had to return uh, to their, uh, well, they can't go to their offices anymore. Uh, they're being evicted from their houses. Gay parties are being raided. Um, and the whole of society is now trying to kind of wipe out all traces of LGBT presence from, uh, from wherever. Like, I mean, one of the tactics that are being used to weaken the anti-corruption committee is a test that all um, uh, civil servants involved in the corruption committee had to take. And in which several questions were, uh, do you support LGBT? If you said you support LGBT, then um, you were clearly not uh, seen as successful uh, or as eligible to be to be a, a, a fighter against corruption. Same with, uh, I mean, are you married? How do you look at, uh, <laughs> what do you do in your sexual practices? You know, all those kinds of things. Also, um, uh, xenophobic remarks were there. Do you think that all Japanese are cruel? You know, those kinds of ridiculous questions. And of course, do you support uh, uh, communism and things and so on? If you would say that, no, I will fight for socialism. No, I support the LGBT movement. You were seen as not uh, eligible to be employed at the Corruption Commission. And so they, they uh, fired 75 of the most able and most honest uh, corruption uh, specialist from the committee, uh, considerably weakening the corruption committee uh, by using these two bogeymen um, of the political elite. And so you see a proxy war going on. Instead of the fight against uh, the environmental, um, environmental degradation, which is going on at a horrendous pace, a fight at the social, uh, social inequality, a fight against corruption, you see that the that uh, <clears throat> the ire of the population is directed against LGBT and uh, communist socialist uh, people. And by, um, uh, by association, human rights defenders. I mean, Nusha Bani Katya the co-author of this book, is regularly uh, called on social media an LGBT defender and a PKI defender, <laughs> right? By association, she is both LGBT and PKI. And this is the worst you can say about anybody. And it's dangerous to, to, to be called like that because it means that, uh, um, well, you can be attacked any moment by the militias. So, so, so this has been something you've studied for, for, for decades. So can you maybe go back to that first sexual panic and talk a little bit about what, what drove the... Uh, the what drove this panic and how the kind of symbols or images or ideas that were used by the army and the people creating this narrative um, uh, both both the, what, what you've already talked about with the September 30th and, and the killing of the generals but more broadly about how it came to be that women could be targeted in this way um. Well, Germani women, 
uh, were the ones who were most active in fighting for women's rights, right? And so in that sense, they opposed uh, the, what you might call a patriarchal uh, restoration. Um, I mean, in the independence war, women were also very active and they were, um, uh, sub, uh, and they were kind of accepted for them, that they came up and they also fought, uh, although many books later ignored their role, but they were active independence fighters. Um, and to do, and as a reward, maybe, those fighters tried to fight uh, against the evils, as they call it, uh, of Indonesian society, uh, uh, polygyny, uh, the uh, uh, men trying to get more and more wives, sexual violence, domestic violence, rape, prostitution, uh, unequal wages, you know, and Kirwani was fighting for that. They supported uh, monogamy, they, uh, they, uh, they fought for education for girls and women. They fought for political representation of women in parliament. But at the same time, which you see after every revolution, you see that conservative forces try to stop this kind of thing going on. They want to go back to the earlier uh, conservative morality, including patriarchal uh, uh, relations. And Karwani fought against that. Muslim groups, conservative Muslim groups, conservative Christian groups were uh, becoming the enemies of Karwani in that, because uh, Karwani was, of course, touting or supporting uh, moralities that they uh, that they uh, thought were were not proper for proper women. Proper women, they thought, should go back to the household now that independence was won. Uh, they should support their husband. They would they should serve their husbands in bed in the kitchen and things and so on. I mean, in Indonesia, the term for um, uh, making love is melayani swami. That is to serve your husband. So it is a passive role of women. Oh. Yeah, and the active role of men. So a woman is not supposed to go against the sexual wishes of her husband. So the idea of marital rape, for instance, is something that's total alien to Indonesian patriarchal culture. Now, Kirwani tried to change all these things, right? Kirwani tried to talk about equality also in domestic arrangement. They try to say that uh, husbands should support their wives if they wanted to have an education and that husbands uh, should not uh, uh, go out and uh, get uh, girlfriends and secondary wives and all that. And, and they were quite successful in that, in the sense that, um, well, in Indonesian society, successful men acquire more and more and more wives, right? Uh, so the PKI leaders also tried to do that. I mean, they had fought for independence. They were successful. They were um, leaders of major social movements, uh, cultural movement, trade unions, and things and so on. And there, Gavani said, yeah, yeah, that's fine. And I'm, I'm happy that you're successful, but don't get another wife. And if they would do that, they would be fired indeed. And they were extremely uh, angry about that, of course. And that was widely uh, uh, recognized in society that you could not, as a PKI man, uh, get a secondary wife, as was um, common for successful husbands. And, and so that went against the whole the core 
or um, values of, of conservative society. So Gurwani women were really controversial or becoming more and more controversial in that sense. While society was becoming more conservative, they were fighting for, uh, for progressive values. Um, and so that was already there, those tensions in society. And then uh, the propaganda went that these girls uh, danced a seductive uh, um, dance, right? The, the dance of the thousand flowers. And that was propagated all over. Um, I mean, they, they went around on trucks in which women were seen to dance, you know, after the event, right? Uh, and there were stories in the press in which women, after heavy torture, of course, um, came up with these stories and they accepted this and they uh, and they said, yes, 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 we danced. Yes, 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 we did this. Yes, 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 we did that. Uh, they had testimonies of prostitutes who they said were Karwani members who were illiterate, who had no idea of what Karwani went for, uh, who said, okay, yes, yes, you, I agree, we did that. And they signed something that they couldn't even read. We have testimonies. I, I collected the interviews in which uh, young, the young girls who were there, because it was a training field for a confrontation with Malaysia. There were training fields in the whole of Indonesia at the time for that. Um, and these girls, 13, 14 year old, um, were, were collected in prison. They were uh, imprisoned. Uh, and then they were taken outside of prison, uh, out of their cells, and they were uh, told to undress. And then they were photographed in prison, naked, and these photographs were used as so-called proof that they had been dancing naked a month ago, right? Uh, and, and so th this is the kind of evidence that was used to convince the population that Garvani was evil. There were also stories about Kuntil Anak. Those are very uh, frightful spirits who were coming up and hovering around the graves of the heroes, right? The, the six slain generals. Um, and it was all uh, intended to give Karwani and the PKI and all socialist organizations a very, very, very bad name. That they were sexually promiscuous, that they were murderers, that they were using ghosts for their own ends, uh, and that they were evil in the deepest sense of Indonesian society. And this, of course, uh, was very uh, effective in a society that was uh, at that time even more superstitious than it is now, um, in, in, in which religious values were very um, conservative and deeply ingrained in the population. Uh, and so they, they, so lots of people could be mobilized on, on, on account of these lies to help the army um, conduct raids on any kind of institution that was considered progressive uh, and in which uh, people were slaughtering uh, their neighbors. I mean, um, we live in an area in which, uh, in which uh, um, mass killings were carried out. Uh, I have interviewed uh, various killers and they said they believed all that. They believed that they had to purge society from the evil of communism, because otherwise, uh, we don't know, women would be corrupted and all kinds of things might follow. People believed that. They st and, and people still believed it well into the 90s and, and, and 2000s and 2010s when I was interviewing uh, and possibly even now in faraway places. Although the 
although we've already long, I mean, uh, social scientists uh, like John Rosa and Jeffrey Robinson and many, many, many others, Jess Melvin and others, we have exposed the lies, but still the propaganda is there. Also because the school books still contain the story of um, the fact or the idea that the Communist Party killed those uh, generals. They were killed by the army. It was an internal army affair. And this still cannot be said loud. And that's why it is so important that we keep talking about these issues. The book, uh, the propaganda book has been translated into Indonesian and has been uh, in Indonesian published uh, beginning of this year. And, and so um, Nur Shabani and I are regularly giving seminars online uh, because um, it is still not well known what exactly happened and how this history unfolded from the perspective of, uh, of the victims uh, of, uh, of Indonesian uh, society and of this genocide. And what is also not known is the complicity of, so, of such large sectors of society. I mean, like the Holocaust, right? Um, Nazi Germany did not, was not only able uh, to, to conduct this horrible Holocaust uh, just with only its soldiers. There was a whole government apparatus that assisted in that. And that was also the case in Indonesia. Now, this has never been talked about, how many uh, administrators, doctors, and also psychologists, we, we, we explain the case of how psychologists became involved in this whole effort. Um, and, and this complicity, the administrators, the civil servants, the torturers, the killers, um, the doctors, uh, the guards, that whole apparatus, um, that has never been talked about also. And these people never talk about it themselves. I mean, when we interviewed psychologists, because psychologists uh, conducted tests in these tests, because, I mean, the PKI, of course, and socialist women and men were innocent, right? It was the soldiers who killed, nobody else. It was soldiers who killed and nobody else killed. And so in order to, um, to, to legitimize the killings and the murders and the, and the executions of PKI leaders and the imprisonment of hundreds of thousands of people, uh, they had to give some kind of legitimation and therefore tests of how communist you were were conducted and those tests were administered and uh, and set up organized by psychologists um, and, and we discussed that in our book how that went and uh, so psychologists played the role of judges actually in Indonesian society but when we interviewed uh, Nushabani and I we interviewed the major uh, uh, psychologists involved whose involvement is um, proven by documents uh, that we collected from uh, um, Dutch universities because, uh, sources because they were trained by Dutch universities, Nijmegen University and the Free University in Amsterdam. So we've got we've collected those documents in which their names are mentioned. They denied all that. Uh, they deny it. They forget it. Uh, it's not true. Uh, they say we are not involved. We never did that. But their names are there. The problem, of course, is that the 
army institute under uh, which wings or under whose orders you can say they did that are still not open in Indonesia. We still cannot enter the army archives. And that, of course, um, should have been done already now, uh, more than 20 years after the fall of the dictator. But because the army is still in power and the same oligarchy that Suharto created is still in power, uh, it is still impossible to access the army archives. You mentioned um, Joshua Oppenheimer and, and his yeah. films. And, and I've used this in class uh, and I always felt inadequate using them. Um, and I, I know they are fairly widely known in the West, but but you you discuss them kind of tangentially in, in your work in ways that I found really illuminating. So as somebody who knows the culture, what should people who watch them in the US or Canada or Germany who don't know Indonesian culture, how can we better understand what's going on in that move, those movies? Um. Well, those movies are vitally important. The, the problem is that after an initial uh, attention that they received, uh, they're hardly ever shown anymore in Indonesia. Uh, they're actually more or less banned, right? You can still do it from time to time, but um, not officially, not openly. And so they didn't get the attention that they deserved. I think that everybody in Indonesia should have seen them. Mm -hmm. um, that is one thing, and that's not true. Uh, people still, many people still haven't seen them. Mm -hmm. um, so that is really a great pity. We always try to show them uh, when, when, when we have trainings or whatever, but it's becoming increasingly difficult. Um, in the West, well, yes, look at them. Uh, the problem is that they're not proper documentaries in the sense that uh, you um, a lot of the background information is missing, uh, and and so when I show them in the West, I have I have shown them uh, uh, regularly in the West to student audiences and to other audiences. I always have to give a lot of background uh, because. Uh, um, this genocide in Indonesia is, 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 is very unknown uh, in, in history because the West was so happy with the outcome, right, that Sukarno was replaced. And so the, the crimes against humanity committed by Suharto were kind of shuffled under the carpet. Nobody was interested in hearing those stories. Um, and so the genocide is relatively unknown. Um, I wish that the films of, uh, of Joshua Oppenheimer, which I admire greatly, uh, would be much better. Known. I've written about them in other, in other uh, journals. So, um, um, and I thought I should not repeat that in the book also because they were already so wide, widely known. Um, but I admire them greatly and, and, and I hope that they will continue to be shown and that people will use them also in, uh, in history. Uh, lessons, because they're beautiful, I mean, and they're so powerful. They're more powerful, I think, than ordinary documentaries are, uh, because they, they work with um, uh, visual techniques and, doc and, uh, and almost fictional techniques, which are also based on the reality, on, on, uh, on, on, the, on the stories of actual people, to give you the kind of insight 
uh, into the mechanisms of what was going on in Indonesia uh, in an incisive way that an ordinary documentary cannot. But because the background information is so limited, people may lose out on what really happened there. Well, we've taken a lot of your time, but, but I want to ask you to follow up on, on, on the last point you made as kind of a conclusion, concluding question for the interview. For those listening who don't know much about what happened in, in Indonesia, what, what books or other sources would, obviously yours, but in addition to yours, what, where should they go? Who would you recommend that they read or watch? Uh, well, watch is the films of Joshua Oppenheimer. And um, there are several books now um, which clearly explain what is going on. There's the, the latest book of John Rosa mm -hmm. on, on the background. And he also documents, uh, I think he gives four case studies of, 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 of murders and massacres going on. And his, his general background is very good. There is Jess Melvin's book, The Me Mechanics of Mass Murder, who clearly documents the role of the army uh, in, uh, in, in, in what's been going on in the genocide. Uh, there is a recent book uh, two years ago coming out by Jeff, uh, Jeff Robinson, who first wrote uh, an excellent book about Bali in which he documented what has been going on in Bali. And then uh, in his latest book, he, he, he really talks about the whole history of, uh, of, of, of that genocide. And so these are excellent books. Um, but you have to be, I think, a master's student or at least a bachelor's, uh, advanced bachelor's studies to read these books easily, I think. Um, and they demand some background knowledge of Indonesian history, which is complicated, of course, but those are excellent books that I would always recommend to, to, to read. There are few, uh, few more popular books, maybe, maybe... Um, somebody should take up that uh, to, to, at that task to write a book uh, for, a, uh, for a really wide audience. That, that would uh, really help, I think, uh, for an, of an audience that is not academically interested. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for taking some time. I really enjoyed the discussion and I know the listeners as well. What, uh, what are you working on now? I'm now working on uh, a book on my involvement uh, of the last 40 years of the LBT history. There are some books already on the gay history, um, which uh, mostly ignore what female-bodied persons uh, experience. Uh, and I've been involved with this LBT movement since the early 1980s. Um, I was on and off. I was also because I was also blacklisted in the country for 13 years. So then I didn't me uh, meet them anymore. But I'm writing that history now. And uh, it's, it's fascinating to look uh, back at, uh, at this long period of, of research, of involvement. I, I call it a political biography because it's also um, an, a form of an autobiography. I grew up in the movement, sort of. I mean, I live in Indonesia most of the time, <laughs> apart from now in this COVID uh, peri uh, period. Um, and so they're my friends, they're my colleagues. Uh, uh, and... Uh, and I'm trying to make sense of, of what is going on also at this moment uh, when the homophobia uh, is at such uh, height, right? More so than it was uh, 10, 20, 10, 15 years ago when we hoped that Indonesia would, uh, would be able to accept 
its uh, sexual minorities better than it does now. Well, Sashka, we, uh, we appreciate talking to you again. We've been listening to uh, an interview with Sashka Viringa, uh, a co-author of the book, Propaganda and the Genocide in Indonesia, Imagined Evil. Um, and Sashka, thank you so much. Best wishes. And I hope that we can have you on the show sometime again. Okay, my pleasure.